for our okay, for our message today, our sermon today. We have a message from Mr. Matthew Steele. This is the fourth part in his series on the kingdom of God. It's entitled, The Kingdom of God, Part 4, The Oil, the Lamp, and the Bridegroom. Mr. Steele. Reg, I appreciate Reg stepping in in the last minute uh, on song leading. So, note to the song leaders, though, if you uh, don't want me to be an emotional mess right before the sermon, don't pick that hymn. That's one of my favorite hymns. Yeah, you too, Steve. It's, uh, I mean, it's just a powerful hymn. And, and in many ways, it's it actually touches upon what we're going to talk about today. If you remember, we last time I spoke, we started digging into the parable of the ten virgins. And there was so many different things. I think we listed like ten different attributes or questions that we have or could have on this parable. And we had enough time to spend on one of them, right? On one simple parable. Well, I wanted to get at least to a second one of these. We talked about how we are the lamp uh, in, in last time in the parable, that, that we are, Jesus said, a light, right, that is supposed to shine and shine and, and show our good works before men. But what powers that lamp? Well, in this situation, it's oil, isn't it? It's oil that powers the lamp. We're supposed to be shining out because of this oil, because of this fuel that is powering us. Jesus told us we are the light of the world, as I said, and that we should shine our works before men. So let's remind ourselves of what was in that parable again in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. It says, And the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps uh, and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels <clears throat> with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose, they jumped up, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest this should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So just a little reminder, we also talked a little bit on the word watch here. And what are we supposed to be watching? Are we supposed to be watching for the Son of Man coming? 
Well, you might think so, but that's not what he said. He was telling us to watch that we are prepared for when he does come, right? So there's a difference there. We're supposed to watch that we are prepared for when he does come because we don't know the day or the hour. So the question for us today is what is this oil? Or maybe more, more accurately, uh, what does this oil do? And, and how, we are, or how are we to embrace this oil and get this oil and buy this oil? Because apparently it is something that we can get. It is something that's available to us. Now, traditionally, we look at this oil as being the Spirit of God. That we need to be powered by and fueled by the Spirit of God. And I think that's right. And as we go through this, I think that will further validate that view. But is it that simple? We just need the Spirit of God and then we're good. How do we get the Spirit of God? Anybody? It's not that hard. It's not a trick question. Baptism and then the laying on of hands for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And then we're ready. Right? Prepared for the bridegroom. Why did Jesus give us this parable if it was that straightforward? It's not that straightforward. So there's something else going on here that we need to think about because apparently we need to buy enough of it from those that sell in order to fuel our lamps when we're ready. Now, this is all true. We do receive the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands at baptism or, or maybe later. Sometimes people are baptized and there's a space of time and then they have the laying on of hands. But nonetheless, we do receive it. That's not to say we don't. But is that all there is? Are we ready for the bridegroom to come? I don't think so. See, in the parable. In this parable, there's something really interesting that goes on here. All of the virgins, I think I touched on this last time, fall asleep, don't they? They all fall asleep. And I think that may well be a symbol for death. We will all fall asleep in one way or the other. We fall asleep. And then when we are called out of that grave, out of that slumber, with the yell, the shout, the trumpet blast that the bridegroom is coming, well, what does Peter say? What manner of person do we need to be? What condition do we need to be in? They all jump up. They all light their lamps. They all light their lamps. And yet, those that didn't have enough oil, their lamps quickly start to go out. So they had some oil, but not enough oil. They had some spirit, but apparently not enough spirit. Now this can be a little controversial, because some believe, well, you either have the spirit of God or you don't. That's one way, one way or the other. And maybe it is that way. Maybe it's not. 
Maybe we can have it in quantities. But, but even if it isn't, the work of the Spirit is in quantity. As we'll see, we look into this. There's a really interesting passage, though, that might challenge our thinking on this. And I love this story. There's a lot of, a lot of deep meaning in this story. And it's, there's a story within a story. And I want you to see if you can see it as we read through it. So thinking about how we can have more of God's Spirit, how we can have this increase in God's Spirit, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 2 and start in verse 1. Because this is a passage that talks about quantities of God's Spirit. It says, And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elisha said, Elijah said to Elisha, just so you know, I'm going to mess this up. So just keep reading. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophet who were at Bethel came to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Shut up. Keep silent. Why are you saying this? And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, I and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. I'm not going to leave you. So they came to Jericho. And now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from over you today? And he probably said in a louder voice, Yes, I know. Will you stop talking about this? I know this. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So two of them went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. You can kind of imagine this, right? Because they knew something was going to happen. They knew Elijah was going to be taken away in some form. So, you know, they're out there. They're watching in a distance. They've got their popcorn and their Coca-Cola, and they're watching for the show. And they were not disappointed because something remarkable was going to happen. And then the two of the men, Elijah and Elisha, stood by Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. It's not the first time this has happened in the Jordan River, is it? You remember another time when this happened? When the children of Israel entered into the land that the river dried up. It's a fascinating story. But did you notice the story within the story? Did you notice, like, embedded within... The, the, the obvious narrative, there is another story taking place. I don't know if you see it the way I see it, but 
but there's a pattern here. And it's the story of the Christian life. It's a story that we're all called to live. As Elijah and Elisha journey together, Elijah's almost testing Elisha. Because that's the only thing I can think of of why he keeps telling him to wait here. Just wait here. I mean, this is the guy that just walked along one day while Elisha was in a field doing his work, minding his own business, and threw his mantle on him and called him to follow him. Called him to be him. To be a prophet in his, in his way, in his vein. To pick up that mantle. And so, what else is he doing here? I think he's testing him. Keeps telling him to stop. To stay at Bethel or Jericho or at the Jordan. And to me, that's reminiscent of other times, other groups of threes. Like when Jesus talked to Peter and he asked him three different times, do you love me? Walking him through a process and preparing him for when his master would be taken away, at least in that physical sense. And along the way, there are prophets and sons of prophets warning Elijah that his master is going to be taken from him. Well, that's further encouraging him to not leave him, right? I'm not going to leave you. Maybe if I don't leave you, then you won't be taken away. God is so poetic. In this story, I think, is the mini story of our Christian journey. The story here, in this story here, Elijah is a symbol, a type, a representation of Jesus. And what are we called to do? We're called to follow after him, aren't we? And as we follow after him, we're faced with challenges. Challenges that sometimes tell us, stay here. Don't, don't journey on further. Elijah's name actually means, he is my God. He is my God. And Elisha, who was following him, is a type of the saints. Us, Christians, walking after our master, following him who is our God. And Elisha's name uh, means God is my salvation. And that's what we profess, isn't it? That's what we claim. That's what we say. Jesus Christ is our salvation. That's what we just sung about in that last, last hymn. And so we have a, a story within a story. It, it's like a mini version of the Christian walk to me within this larger story. And then we are to ask these, answer these questions. When the going gets tough, when it's difficult, do we stop at Bethel? Do we stop at these different places, at Jericho, a fortified city? Do we stop and try and fortify and strengthen and protect ourselves? Do we go on to the Jordan River? Do we follow Jesus Christ? Or do we say, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So if we do follow him from Bethel and to Jericho and to Jordan, 
in our own lives. And what does that look like? Well, let me go back to the story of Elijah and Elisha a little bit more because it really gets interesting. Going back into verse 9, it says, And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Okay, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? And again, almost reminiscent of something that Jesus said. Do you remember what he said to the disciples? Shortly before he was going to get taken away from them, he said in John chapter 14 and verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that, that I do, he will also do. Huh, just like Elisha would do the same works as Elijah, the same things, and greater works. Elisha did greater works. And I think by all accounts, if I remember correctly, Elisha's ministry was longer, I think, than Elijah, if I'm remembering that correctly. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So Elijah is kind of asking the same thing of Elijah. What do you want, Elisha? What's our answer? What's our answer to Jesus? When he asks us these things, what do, we, what do we think about when we read that scripture? Well, I could do with a new job, right? Or I could do with some healing because I'm in pain. Or... Could you intervene on the, the part of a loved one, a family member? And these things are not bad things to ask. I mean, they're good. And God is gracious, isn't he? He, he grants us those things according to his will. Is that what we're supposed to be asking for? When Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. What is he asking us to ask? Well, going back to the story of Elijah, I think maybe his response to the question is what Jesus is looking for. Elisha said to Elijah when he asked him that, he said, please let a double portion of your spirit be on me. Now, there's a number of things in this, right? that we can take away is that it at least appears according to Elisha that you can have more of something of the spirit that was in Elijah. He wanted double. There's also something here is that Elisha was a little naive in respect to Elijah because Elijah's like, you do not know what you're asking for. Right? <laughs> like, okay. It's like what Aunt Maid said to Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. You don't know what you're asking for. But, he says, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened. <clears throat> As they continued on and talked. And I like that. They continued on and talked. They continued on together. They continued on in the way together. Just like we're supposed to do with Jesus. 
walking in that way with him. That suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. Went right in between them as they, I don't know, maybe they jumped back. And then a whirlwind took Elijah into heaven. Now, we know later that Elijah was still on the earth. But he lifted him up into the heavens and carried him away somewhere else. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, and the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more. You can kind of hear the pain there. His mentor, his guide, his, his master in, the, in that sense, as being his rabbi, his teacher, is taken away. And he's left alone. So he saw him no more, and he took a hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. <clears throat> you know, there's just lots of imagery there, isn't it? That he's tearing off his old clothing. He's tearing off the old self. And what does he do? He took up the mantle <clears throat> of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Picked up the mantle. We've heard many, many sermons about that. The meaning of that. And then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. And now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed their face to the ground before him. Of course, they were wrong. It was a double spirit of Elijah. It was double the spirit. That's what we get from the scripture. So it is possible to have different quantities of the spirit. And, you know, I think we all know that it wasn't Elijah's spirit, right, that they're really referring to. It's the spirit of God that was in Elijah. But what's interesting is the way they talk about it, it's almost indistinguishable between the two. Think about that. Think about having so much of God's Spirit incorporated into our very being that when people see us, we're indistinguishable in many ways from God himself. That's the point. That's what we're supposed to have. That is the goal. That's amazing. So, Elijah's spirit, the spirit of God that was in Elijah, double portion on Elisha. Are we willing to ask for a double portion? Would we want a double portion of that spirit? Because that spirit drove Elijah and Elisha to do some very difficult Oftentimes, strange things, hard things. You don't read about them having a lot of parties with friends. You know, I, I, don't, I think people kind of tended to 
scuttle out of the way when they walk through town, you know, like the old westerns with the, the gunslinger walks in town, and like, the rafter, you know, all the windows and doors close. Because when Elijah came to town, <laughs> there could be some message from God, right? There could be some judgment from God. And in fact, later on we talk about, uh, and we see the story where the king is like, oh man, I thought we were done with Elijah, and here's Elisha. The same spirit is back. Do we want that? Do we want the double portion? Do we want more of the Holy Spirit? More of God's spirit? The answer better be yes, because we won't have enough to fuel our lamp. Our lamp will go out. And then we'll say to those that have it, give me some. <laughs> give me some of yours. And they won't give it. In reality, they can't give it. And then it'll be too late. Now, what's really important here is for us to recognize that the Spirit of God is not the Spirit of works. And it's a critical thing for us to remember. Because oftentimes, the human response in relationship with God is to try and do things better. Try and follow things more accurately. Try to, to get maybe following the Lord just right, or the holy days just right. And, and be the best that we can be. And that comes from a genuine place of trying and wanting to be good enough, but we can never be good enough, can we? There was a group of men that prided themselves on keeping the law of God, keeping things just right. In fact, they even came up with a whole bunch of extra laws that they would follow, right, to be doubly righteous, to make sure that they were righteous. And this is what Jesus says about them in Matthew 15, verse 7. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But if we ask Jesus for more of his spirit, more of the Spirit of God, and allow that Spirit to perform the work in us, then what flows out of us is righteousness. It's such an interesting contradiction, is that oftentimes, as Christians, we want to be righteous, and we want to do the right thing, and we try so hard to do the right thing, and yet it's not doing the right thing that gets us right with God. It's about the Spirit of God working in us that enables us to do the right thing. We have it in reverse. When we have the Spirit of God working in us, shaping us, training us, then I think that the, it's evident, isn't it? The fruits of the Spirit come out. The fruits of the Spirit grow out of us. And then we can't help but follow his law. We can't help but love our neighbor as ourselves. We can't help but love God with all our heart and keep his Sabbaths and his holy days. But the spirit 
that powers and fuels the lamp has to come first. Remember when we talked about last time, I think we also talked about it in the, in the Bible study last time as well, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our heart is full of the Spirit of God, then out of that abundance, we will speak and act. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus said, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we take action, and we do things. So going back to the, the parable of the virgins, I think we see this truth further reinforced. In the absence of anything other than the Spirit of God, as being the, the necessary equipment to enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, he gives it pretty simply. It is the Spirit of God that fuels the lamp that allows us to be ready to enter the kingdom. It's pretty straightforward. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all the virgins rose trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They can't. I mean, they cannot do that. They can't give of themselves. They have to go buy of their own. Rather, go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding. There's lots of things that are not mentioned here. Now, this is a parable. It has limits. But I think it's important for us to recognize that the most important part of this parable is being filled with the Spirit of God, being fueled by it, and to be cautious about taking steps and works and actions that either limit or constrain the Spirit of God as it works in us. And start to ask for more of that spirit. Are we being filled and fueled? Are we doing the things in this Christian walk that will allow our heart, our mind, to be filled and fueled by the Spirit of God? Are we trying to get there by our own works? Are we trying to be good enough, work just enough, or, or, or even more, and let's add some more law, and let's add some more righteous acts to try and do this for ourselves. We have lamps that need to be fueled by the Spirit of God. Good works are only possible when we are fueled by the Spirit of God, just like Elijah and Elisha. It's not the other way around. Good works don't get us the fuel. The fuel gets us the good works. And that's, I think, the part of the process that's most important here in allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us is having a heart that is removed from all the calluses. Having what the scripture calls a circumcised heart. And it's interesting, the story 
of Elijah and Elisha takes place in a region where there was a mass circumcision. I don't know if you guys realize that. But the, the areas that they traveled, each of these steps, it was in the plains of Jericho, by the Jordan. In that area was where the children of Israel first entered into the land. We find that story in Joshua chapter 5, and verse 1. It says, So it was when the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan before the children of Israel, until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. And it's interesting that their spirit just went away, right? Their spirit of confidence or strength, well, all these people can't cross this river right now. Oh, yeah, you want to see? And so their spirit, their hearts just melted. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, <laughs> it's important to note this was not a second time for them individually, because that would be a lot worse. But we'll see, we'll read on here, and we'll see what that means. So Joshua made flint knives for himself, circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way, and after they had come out, uh, and after they had come out of Egypt, for all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the men born in the wilderness on the way, as they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, in whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land, which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's kind of reminiscent a little bit, right, of arriving a little too late, having faith in God a little too late, not having sufficient uh, spirit of God, oil in our lamp, and not being able to go into the, the marriage ceremony. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place. For they were all uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people. And they stayed in their places uh, in, the, in the camp till they were healed. And you betcha they stayed in one place until they were healed. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. I'm like, can you think about all the jokes and the fun that the wives and the women had about all these guys just, you know, groaning every time they got up to go to the bathroom or whatever it may be. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of funny when you think about it. But it's also something that they would not forget, right? You know, those of us that have been circumcised at birth, you know, or eight days later or whatever it may be, have no memory of it. These guys did. And it was for a reason. They were supposed to remember it. It was a covenant. But it wasn't about 
a covenant of sexual purity or any of those things. It wasn't even just a symbol that they were in the covenant, although they were, and it was important. There was a deeper meaning in all of this. So when they were healed, uh, the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So it's kind of almost another Passover in a way. Another rolling away, which the circumcised, that's a, a word that time, ties into that rolling away. And in fact, the name of the place has an image of a rolling, or a rolling away or a whirlwind, which is interesting because later we have a whirlwind carry Elijah away. There's lots of very poetic connections in here. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, the children of Israel camped at Gilgal and uh, kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate food in the land of Canaan that year. Just think about these monumental things that were happening in Israel. The manna stopped. This entire generation just, they just knew that every morning they went and got manna. Just the way it was. And now, well now it was back to real life. They had to harvest and they had to Later, we see they have to prepare the land and they have to do all this work that they didn't have to do for 40 years. And that's impactful. And of course, with the circumcision, many of these things they did not forget about. So what did they need in order to enter the land? I mean, they, they technically entered it already. But what we see here was that the reproach of Egypt had to be rolled away from them, had to be taken off them, and through a process of circumcision. They had to be circumcised. They had to take away something from their flesh in order to enter into the kingdom of God, in order to enter into, in a sense, the marriage supper, and to, to eat at the feast of the land, and to celebrate the Passover. They had to have that skin that covered an incredibly sensitive place, right? There's a, I think there's a, uh, oh, there's a, a Saturday Night Live sketch, I think it was, of God creating Adam and Eve. And he's putting all of these nerve endings. He's got a sh salt shaker and he puts all these nerve endings in one particular place. Well, and God knew what he was doing for lots of reasons. But for this reason, he's saying this is an incredibly sensitive, vulnerable place. And I want you to take off from, from be between you and me this barrier of flesh, this this layer that gets in between the incredible intimacy that God wants to have with us. That's a beautiful thing that he's trying to help us understand. The not doing it, though, I mean, maybe they were doing it. 
for the, the purposes of following a commandment. Because certainly they would have been rebellious if they had not done it. And who knows where the story would end up. Another 40 years in the wilderness. But what was the bigger purpose? What was God really trying to teach them? Well, they already had it. They already had it in the books of Moses. What he wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all people, as it is this day, you know, God delighted in you. He loved you. He has called you. He's called you to, to be special to him, to be intimate with him. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Take away that barrier from that intimacy between God and your heart. Think about that. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. All this circumcision stuff, all these, what we could think of as a work of the law or the covenant, goes beyond that physical covenant. It goes beyond the physical practicing of God's law. It goes beyond that religious, legalistic practice. Beyond the physical work. It's pointing to something deeper. A symbol of something that we all need to have if we are to enter into the kingdom of God. Into the promised land and the wedding supper. We have to be circumcised in our heart. Circumcised in our heart. That protective layer of skin that covering we have on our hearts that we have put there, the things that we have covered over that we have put there, the bitterness, the anger, the numbness, the distancing from God and from others, the hardness of heart, maybe depression. These are things that have covered over our heart because of things that have happened to our heart, to our woundedness, to things that have been done to us, things that we have done to ourselves and to others. We've damaged it, haven't we? We have a damaged heart, and then it's calloused over with this foreskin-type imagery that God is saying, I want to get rid of that. Let's get rid of that so that I can get at your heart and heal your heart. And fill it with the Holy Spirit. Remember the parable of the five wise virgins. They are telling us. They're warning us. They're pleading with us. To go get the oil sooner than later. To go get the spirit sooner than later. And they tell us to do what? To go to those that sell. And buy. 
And you're thinking, well, that didn't work out too well for, uh, what was it, Simon? Tried to buy the Holy Spirit. How much you want? Uh, 50, 100, $500 for some, some of that special power that you have? And yet, we're told to go buy the oil, buy the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Psalm 139 and verse 23. And this is, kind of stay with me here. I hope my thought is flowing. Buying the Spirit involves an exchange, doesn't it? Uh, Buying anything involves an exchange. I'm giving you something of value and you're giving me the thing that I want. And so the central to this is an exchange. And here's some of the things that we are going to exchange. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He's giving permission for God to search him and understand his heart. To to explore it. To understand his attitudes. What he thinks about things. The things that he feels towards others. The way he feels towards, or the, the feelings he has when others interact with him. Know my heart. Try me. Test me and know my anxieties, my anxiousness, my fears. Anybody free from fears and anxieties? Hey, no hands are raised. We need God to know those, don't we? And oftentimes that's probably the loudest thing we yell. But the thing that we might not yell quite so loud is, and see if there's any wicked way in me. I don't want any wicked ways to be in me. But there are. But here's the good news. The word wicked here doesn't mean what you think it means. What it means is wicked as in bad or hurtful or painful things in me. Now we know the human heart is desperately wicked. But in this sense, what God, what what David is praying to God is, Find the hurtful and painful wounded places in me because of sin or the sin that others have committed against us. And lead me in the way everlasting. Which is a contrast that if we are not willing to let God search our heart, find those wicked, wounded, damaged places and bring his healing into it, then it's not the way everlasting. It's the way of death. It's the opposite of pain and fear and woundedness. It's the opposite of trying to earn our own salvation. This is part of the transaction here. We cannot work our way through, we can't buy with our actions the Spirit of God. We have to exchange it with something. And we're about to act this out, aren't we? In Passover, this Passover service that we're about to have. We get to act this out every year in this beautiful Passover. Christ our Passover. And we're acting it out every year. So again, what is this exchange? What are we exchanging? In Isaiah chapter 55, it says, verse 1, Ho, everyone, hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. 
Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you buy something without money? Well, you, you could bring along some chickens, I suppose, do a little barter thing. But wait, it says without price. You're buying something with something that can't fill money and there is no price. What's going on here? He says, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of the bridegroom. The one who is coming at midnight or wherever time that is at a time that we're not going to be prepared for. He says, if we trade something without money and without price, we will get to go into that everlasting kingdom, that marriage supper of the Lamb. But how can we do this? How can we get that abundance of God, that spirit, that oil, without buying it? Well, God is offering something. He's offering us a deal. And we see it at Passover. He is taking all the sin, all the brokenness, saying, give me your broken heart. Give me your wounds. Give me the things you've committed. Give me the things that you have said. Give me the things that you have feared. Give me everything that is of the way of death. Give that to me. And I will give you this abundant Spirit-filled life. And don't think that is easy. Ask the man of Israel, was it easy to be circumcised when full-grown? No. The circumcision of the heart is what? It's open-heart surgery. Is what it is. And it will not happen without pain. It will not happen without being willing to go to those places that have made us bitter, that have made us angry, that have made us question our faith, made us anxious, fearful that we're really going to enter that kingdom. We have to let God work in our hearts with his spirit so we can be fueled by his spirit. In Psalm 51, David just has this beautiful psalm. I'm just going to read this to close. I think he's, he's giving us a clue as to how this happens and, and, and what we need to allow to happen. When we're asking for God to do something for us, asking for his spirit, asking for a double portion, he's going to say, okay, I have to do something. Because in the human heart, there's room only for the Spirit of God or the Spirit of man. And the Spirit of man is holding on to all of those traumas, all of those pains, all of those sins and lies and agreements. And instead, we need to exchange that for the Spirit of Christ Jesus.
So David says, have mercy on, upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. Now, you know, sometimes we can look at that and say, well, okay, I can think about this thing I did and I can think about that thing that I did. It's deeper than that. I acknowledge my transgressions. What really were those transgressions? It's not necessarily the acts that we performed, the things that we did. It was from the abundance of the heart, remember? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the abundance of the heart, we take action. So it's that thing that is in our heart. That is the root origin of our transgressions. So this takes time. And in my sin is always before me. Against you only, and you only have I sinned and done evil, this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. I look at that and I see understanding why we act the way we are. He's talking about the heart and, and why we take the steps that we take in life and why we say the things and why we make assumptions and criticize, why we do any of the hurtful things to ourselves or others. It comes from these places. Help me to know wisdom as to why I'm doing these things that you can perform this circumcision of the heart, this open surgery, this open heart surgery. Purge me with hyssop. Hmm. With hyssop. We know hyssop, don't we, from Passover. From Christ our Passover. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. <laughs> Why was he breaking bones? Why was he breaking bones? You know when you have open heart surgery? They break the bones. They cut open your chest. They break the bones. But he said, I'm going to rejoice in that. Because with that surgery comes a removal of all of those things comes what he says next. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That oil that fuels the lamp, that allows us to shine. And it's steadfast. It's not going anywhere. It's resilient. It's immovable. This is what we need to fuel our lamps. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not, please, take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't want that. But instead, give us a double portion. 
right? A double portion. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. Remember what Jesus said? Let your light shine so that those in the world can see your good works. That shows them the way, whether they want to hear it or not. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, he had the tabernacle right there. He could go and put sacrifices on the altar, and did, of course. But he's like, that's not the point. That is not the point. What is the point? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Bring that heart to him. Broken, open, circumcised, soft and tender toward him. He's going to fill us with his spirit. Fill us as these lamps that shine in darkness. And then we get to enter the kingdom.